0: Hi and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host Spencer Martin. This week we are going to be uh, doing a quick breakdown going through my race notes of uh, a Bianchi which was on Saturday won by Woot Van Aert and pretty fantastic fashion with Julien Alaphilippe coming in second and Egan Bernal with a super surprising third place. Uh, Perry Nice stage one and two have also they ran on Sunday and Monday. We'll talk about those kind of Kind of formulaic sprint finishes, but with some there's there's some interesting twists there, so we'll get into that. But first, if you want to support the podcast, there is a companion newsletter, uh, beyondthepeloton.substack.com. You can sign up for the free weekly or um, paid uh, semi-daily edition. And if you sign up for the paid edition, there's benefits like a free Strava premium account for 12 months. Uh, you get 20% off stage of cycling products, uh, 20% off... Curé of Switzerland, fantastic clothing. Recently picked some of that up. Highly recommend checking out their their web store. Uh, But you can find all of those options at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. And if you're listening to this podcast and enjoying it, uh, the free version is a no brainer. So let's get into Strade. I mean, just up top, fantastic win by uh, Matthew Vanderpool, my favorite in my Friday preview. Coming into this, I just thought, um, (laughs) judging by his performance last Sunday at Kern Brussels Kern. He was the strongest rider in the race. I mean, he looked fantastic at Kern. Uh, The only other rider I thought would kind of be up there was Julian Alaphilippe uh, because he looked fantastic at Saturday at Omloop. Uh, I mean, interestingly, neither of them won those races the week before, but they both looked really, really good. On Saturday at Strada, Vanderpool won with Alaphilippe five seconds behind, and then Egan Bernal was 20 seconds behind Vanderpool, so 15 behind Alaphilippe. What's amazing about that is, a that's an amazing, amazing result for Ian Bernal, a 2019 Tour de France champion who had a horrible 2020. After we never quite got resolution on what happened there. I over we heard a couple different things like overtraining perhaps was a problem. Um, he cited like a pretty serious back issue that seems to be resolved. He did say he has pain all anytime he's on the bike, which is kind of an issue, but. I mean, he really got it through it. I mean, he looked, he looks really good. We'll talk about him and what this means for his Giro d'Italia assault later in the pod. But, uh, so they all entered the final, like 400 meters together. It finishes up a re- there's a really steep, narrow cobblestone street in Siena, in Tuscany, Tuscano, and it goes into like a beautiful piazza. And Vanderpool put so much time, so much time, and Bernal was riding strong, and he got 20 seconds put into him in like half a kilometer, so just shows you how hard Vanderpool was attacking in that final, that final kick up. He put out 1,300 watts on the attack, which I feel like that's getting overblown a little bit. That's certainly a lot of watts, but you know your local group ride was, was probably ride won by someone putting out a 1,300-watt surge in the final move. But the really unique thing, I mean, the really impressive thing is if you kind of, you pull that scope out, he did, I'm just looking at his power file now, he did, the last minute and a half, he averaged 550 watts, essentially. I mean, that, that's really hard to do. And just that climb, he averaged basically 800 watts for the nearly minute-long climb, which is, to me, that's kind of the headline. The 1,300 watts, yes, he, w- he threw down a very vicious attack after four and a half hours of racing. Um, he, he really made those guys look like they were standing still when he went, it was impressive, but, uh, you know, that, that max, that max wattage isn't, isn't insane, but to hold 800 Watts for close to a minute on that final, that final kickup after being at, I think he was at like 400 Watts, the last 20 minutes of the race. So that that's when you start pulling it out, it, it's really impressive. It's just uh, shows how strong he is really, really like almost inconceivably strong. But I said in in the newsletter, I got a note from uh, Tim, one of the hosts of the Slow Ride podcast, a uh, big big Vanderpool podcast over there. Get a lot of crap about anytime I talk crap on him, or anytime I talk negatively about him, I get a lot of crap from them. But I did say in the newsletter that I he proved he has the tactical skill necessary to win against the best racers in quote unquote or in parentheses almost biggest races this season. Uh, yeah, probably. And then Tim messaged me and basically said, "What about Flanders that he won last year, which is probably." if not the biggest race in the world, one of the biggest races in the world. So I probably should have couched that, by. I think I kind of meant this season. And I also, I should have phrased it differently, meant that it, he really, he really had a tactically impressive race. He did not just win Strata on like pure, you know, despite all those numbers, I just said, he did not win this race just on pure strength. Um, there was actually, a, I thought he was quite tactically astute, at least for him. And really led, like, like woot van Aert, last year's winner do a lot of the work um so uh yeah I probably I should have qualified that that was a little silly not to uh but I do think this was i I think this was more impressive than his tour Flanders win last year, which is kind of silly to say because Flanders is a much longer race, like almost two hours longer, and on paper a, a, a quote, quote bigger race it's a monument, but this field it was was ridiculous I think this field was was harder. And I think guys, this is also kind of hard to prove, but uh, the the level, the fitness level of the competitors was, I believe, much higher um, on Saturday than it was last year during those kind of rescheduled and truncated classics. They had to do this weird uh, scheduling where the classics ran at the same time as, I believe it was the Vuelta. It could have been the Giro. If you remember, they basically did three Grand Tours in a row. So it was like 90 straight days of Grand Tours. And they were running the classics at the same time, which, you know, is naturally going to dilute the field in, your, in, any, in both races if you're running them at the same time. And guys didn't really have time to prepare. There was jumping from one race to the next. So I think this was the bigger victory, um, even if on paper it, the race is not as prestigious and it's shorter, um, which actually which suits him. We'll get into that in a second to have a crackpot theory about that. But he's, I mean, whatever you think about him, he's proving to be one of, if not the best one-day races in the world. Because if you think about the last major one-day classics, we had Liege-Bastogne-Liege. These are just the major classics. Uh, Tour of Flanders and then Strada Bianchi, which is not, I'm going to count as a major classic. He got six at Liege, after doing like a 50 kilometer solo breakaway the day before in like a much smaller race that he probably shouldn't even have been racing. Um, and the race doesn't even suit him. So super impressive result. Wins Tour of Flanders, the last major classic before uh, Saturday, and then wins Strata. So if you just kind of think about the end of last season and the beginning of this season as one continuous run, he is, I, I think it would you would be hard to argue that he's not the best one-day rider in the world, at least right now. And if he can continue, if he can get he can win either Flanders or Roubaix, I think, I think you have to call him the best. He's, he's like the reigning classics champion. He's better than Wout Van Aert, which is crazy because if we flash, not even 12 months ago, seven months ago, to Strada Bianchi last year, Wout Van Aert won that solo. Super impressive. The next week, he comes back and wins Milano Sanremo. And we're thinking, oh, wow, this guy. This guy's the best. He's the new Fabian Cancellari. He's the best classics writer in the world. Um, <laughs> Oops, not anymore. There's a, a new guy in the block, but this actually kind of mirrors the Tom Boonin won uh, three monuments before his b- before he was 27. Um, just for reference, Matthew Manderpole's 26 and has one monument victory. so if he got two this year, he'd pull level with him. Fabian started a little bit slower in his career, but caught up to him eventually and they they were kind of the best rider, best one day rider in the world throughout their careers kind of like tragically never were seemed to be on on the same seasons that one would always have like a health problem or in the uh with Boone and Boonin's uh case like a cocaine sus- suspension suspension uh while the other one was having a great year so we never really got to see him face off head to head so this is kind of like maybe we can cross our fingers that we'll get to see two of the best classics writers of all time facing off against each other but as it stands now Vanderpool just is better just straight up better um he Woot Van Aert did look really strong he actually looked like a stronger the stronger rider in the race uh mid-race he was really pushing the pace from uh I have in my notes I mean his team was like from the moment I turned it on with about 100k to go his Jumbo team was at the front controlling the race parent I mean this if you haven't seen the race, you should just look up some YouTube videos or I have some screenshots in the newsletter that went out this morning. Uh, it's tiny, like these gravel sections are tiny and chaotic and you have to be at the front. And there's not even really the flow of a major classics like Tour Flanders or Paris-Roubaix. You kind of know those, those courses have been run for so, so, so long. You kind of know when the moves are going to go. But Strada Bianchi is a young race. It's just 15 years old. So, and it just, it feels chaotic. The last 100K, it feels like the winning move can go whenever. Uh, and and Van Aert was up front doing the right thing, but I thought he took it too far. And he was, was really on the front a lot, really forcing the pace. Uh, Vanderpool actually looked in trouble with like 52K to go. I thought he was getting dropped. There, I mean, there was a climb where the 19-year-old American, Quinn Simmons, who's like probably the most hated rider in the peloton, at least according to Twitter. Um, he's pretty, uh, he's like just not a pleasant person. We don't really have to get into why people don't like him, but he, he was riding really, really strong with like 50 K to go, like five, riding five or six meters off the front of the peloton kind of for no reason. If you really think about that, why, why was he doing that? Why was he forcing the pace? The onus isn't on him to do that. And that's probably just youthful exuberance being 19, not just thinking, oh, I've, been able to force and like physically command every race I'm in, I'll just ride away right here and force a selection. But if you think about it strategically and maybe he needed more guidance from his his team on this, what's he doing? Because he's not he might be really strong. He's not the strongest rider in the race. I mean Julian like I'm just looking at the screenshot. Julian Alifleep's right behind him. Woot Van Art, Matthew Vanderpool, Greg Van Avermet. I mean, these are really strong guys, some of the strongest guys to ever race. And you're trying to like Take him on one on one. That's silly. Like he should have been sitting in the group, you know, just sitting in the wheels, you know, make that front group and then see what you can do at the end. Everyone knows if you, you just basically at Strata, you hold on, you know, maybe you can, maybe you get away on one of the final climbs like Woot Van Aert did last year, or you just, you just sit and you wait for the final climb. If you think you're stronger than everyone, like he clearly did, he just should have waited until the final pitch and rode away from him there. So this was, Impressive, like physically impressive, but I thought tactically silly. And it it did. It, he made he made this this selection. So with like fifty two k to go, he forces it. Vanderpool's caught out. Um, Ala Philippe and Wout Van are are really drilling it on the front. I, I would assume because they they know they're getting told through their radio earpieces that Vanderpool's in trouble, and are just trying to think if we can get rid of him now. Like, you know, we could we maybe can't beat him if we take him to the line, but if we drop him now you know, either of us could win this race. I'm sure that's what they were thinking. Vanderpool bridges up. I mean, he really comes like in 2K, the race explodes. It goes from what looks like 40, 50 riders to a lead group of like eight with a chase group of like 10. I'm just making, I think these, I'm just totally eyeballing these numbers. I could look it up, but I don't really want to. And Vanderpool just like rides across. And right there, we. I mean, think like guys like Greg Van Averen get dropped right here. Who's really strong. So probably should have been a hint that that uh, was really really strong. Just kind of, maybe I don't think he was bluffing. I think he legitimately got caught out, but he wasn't in any. He certainly wasn't in any hurry to, to show everyone how strong he was, which I thought was really clever in retrospect. Wu continues to do. I, I thought this is where Van Art kind of maybe. I mean I don't know if he really lost the race because I don't think he could have won. He's been doing a long long training camp. In the Canary Islands, like altitude training camp, he rode like 90 hours in three weeks with some of these weeks were like like 100,000 feet of climbing in a single week. So uh, I'm sure he was pretty fatigued and definitely not race sharp from that fit, but not race sharp. Uh, But he was, you know, the the second group, they're just dangling. This first group is dangling like at 38K to go. They're only nine seconds in front of the second group, uh, which has some strong riders like Jakob Fulsangs back there. Uh, Vanderpool actually had two teammates, his Alpes and Phoenix team, who I didn't think was that strong, uh, really impressed me by getting two, two guys in that chase group who could just sit on. Jakob Fulsheim actually freaked out and was yelling at him and gesticulating wildly trying to get them to pull, but that doesn't make any sense, right? Why would they pull their own rider back? Who's the favorite to win the race? Uh, it was a little weird that Vanderpool was working up front. While his teammates were in the group behind, but if you at first I was like, oh, I don't know, maybe he just doesn't know what he's doing. That's kind of silly tactics, but you know, if you think about it, I mean, I guess if you if he, I'm sure he knew he was the strongest rider in that front group. If you're the strongest rider, you think I just want to keep this small because the more people that are up here, the more variables there are. So I just want to keep the variables limited, and I'll win this thing. And my two teammates, they can't really help me, you know, at, at this point in a race, unless you're getting ganged up on, you don't really, you don't really need those guys. And what are you going to bring Jakob Fulsang up who could potentially beat him on the, on that final pitch? Like, no, thank you. So, and you, it keeps the the front group working together. If you can show like a good faith effort and taking polls and they were all rolling through pretty well, which they had to it a nine second gaps, not very much 38 K to go. I thought for sure they were going to get caught, but they, they all show a good faith effort and working together. Um, there's only, Ineos did have two riders in there, Tom Pickock and Egan Bernal. But other than that, there wasn't a lot. There was really any shenanigans going on. And Ineos, I, I wonder if the, the rest of the riders didn't really take those two riders seriously. I mean, you don't want to take Tom Pickock. Tom Pickock is an incredibly a punchy, light rider. You obviously don't want to take him to a finish like that. But I don't think there was a lot of concern they were going to get worked over by those two guys. So they're all working together very well. It probably makes sense for Vanderpool just to go along with it. Like, why not? If you think you can beat any, beat the rest of them, just, just do a couple turns. I mean, you don't even have to, you don't, you don't, there's no rule saying you have to pull as hard as you can. Well, I thought he did a, a super, super impressive job of not, not going like full Vanderpool here and just like trying to ride everyone off his wheel. He's just taking turns, taking turns. Um, attacks with 23 K to go on a climb. Woot's immediately in trouble. Woot Van art. Uh, he, Tom pickock was dropped a little bit early and pickock rides past him. Like he's standing still. Like I thought and woods, like draped over his bike. He looks bad here. Um, almost like he missed a feed or something. I don't know. Cause he was so strong, just 25 K earlier. And then he just fell apart. It's like I wouldn't be surprised if he missed a bottle or a feed or or what, what 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 I I don't quite know what was going on there, but Pickock blows by him. He does catch up to Pitcock, and once he gets to Pitcock, Pickock sits up, um, which is smart because his teammate Egan Bernal's in the group in front of him. So you don't want to work with you don't want to pull someone back up to your teammate. You're just decreasing your teammate's chance of winning or. I'm sure even Bernal was thinking like, I'd love just to get a podium here. I mean, either for Pitcock and Bernal getting a podium would be great. So Pitcock sits on and Van Art pulls him back. I mean, it was kind of a kind of a tricky tricky gap and they pull him back. Uh, Van Art actually jumps jumps away when they get within like four seconds. He attacks. Pitcock's kind of left dangling, has to pull it back by himself. Van Art definitely had something left, but Clearly, clearly, he's not all there if he's getting dropped um, when Alaphilippe attacked. He, Van Aert actually leads them into, I think it was the last gravel section with 13k to go, which if you remember is where he attacked last year and won. It's that same downhill. He, he led into it and tried to force a gap just like he did the year before. Uh, it doesn't really work. And then Vanderpool attacks on the uphill. Uh, it's like a kilometer downhill and then... Uh, it leads right into a short, steep climb. Vanderpool just—it was like a thermonuclear attack—just shatters the field. Only Alaphilippe can go with him. Um, somehow, Bernal, super impressive, uh, pulls back up to him. I didn't quite see how far he was behind. Like maybe, maybe it took him a kilometer or two to pull back up. But really, really impressive by him. Uh, Vanderpool was—you could tell—he was nervous about taking Alaphilippe to the finish, which makes sense. Alaphilippe's one of the best in the world at uh, short steep climbs like that. He attacks on the downhill with like 3k to go. And Alaphilippe, I mean, he, actually, I would have, I have no notes for Alaphilippe, which is good and bad. He rode the perfect race, but kind of shows you like when, when Vanderpool's on like that, I don't know how you beat him because he didn't panic when Vanderpool attacked. He made Bernal pull him back because he probably knew a third place was really important to Egan Bernal right now. And so he just kind of sits on Bernal, who pulls him back up to Van uh, I thought it was a little, they like, get to the final kilometer. Alaphilippe's in front, which isn't ideal, because then he's vulnerable to attacks. Uh, sure enough, right there, Van attacks him. And you're thinking, oh, whoa. I, I mean, at the time, I was thinking like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Uh, Alaphilippe and Bernal are just right there on his wheel. But it proved later, it was, it, you could tell... Later, after he did the real attack, that this was like a probing fake attack, just to see what would happen, because with like four or 500k to go, or meters to go, he just blows him out of the water. It was a super, super impressive move. Um, just immediately forces like 10, 15 meters between him and Philippe. Bernal looks like he's he puts the thing in the reverse. He's just flying out the back. And that was it. Uh, Vanderpoel entered the Piazza alone to win the race. But Al Philippe looks great, looked great. and we got to keep this let's let's uh, keep the greater context in mind here. If we look at the calendar, Milano Sanremo, which is the first monument of the year, is two weeks from uh, from Strata, which is a big uh, big big target for Alaphilippe. So he's looking good for that. Uh, you you are do get kind of worried that. Vanderpool is a little too strong too early. I mean, I, I'm nit, these are nitpicks here. I'm picking tiny, tiny nits, and I wouldn't say all is lost for Wout Van Aert. I mean, to come off a training camp that hard, he's clearly targeting the big classics later in the year. I mean, later in the spring, like Tour of Flanders, Rube. So he could be. I I would I would be curious to be on that team bus afterwards if he's happy with this performance. I mean, obviously, it's never good to get waxed by your rival like that that has to hurt the ego, but there could be, I, I mean, there could be actually some optimism there, I mean, he was, he rode a really dumb race, he came off a huge, huge training camp, and made the final group, so that's actually not, a, it's not a terrible day, Uh, I think just emotionally, it's probably hard, because the momentum was with him so much last August, even going in the Tour de France, I mean, people were saying, like, he was king of the world during the tour. I mean, Tadej Pogacar obviously won it, but people were saying, oh, wow, Woot Van Aert, look at him climbing like he's doing all this work on the mountains. I mean, this guy won two sprint stages. This guy could win the tour if he wanted. I mean, if we cast our minds back, he was, no one was talking about Matthew Vanderpool. Like it was the Woot Van Aert show. And then the, it just turned so sharply and so suddenly. And now he's kind of on the outside looking in. I would imagine that that's emotionally kind of tough to deal with, especially after just getting waxed Cross worlds, which makes sense. Matthew Vanderpool's the better cross rider, but yeah, I I would think I was really the only thing I would worry about. And I wonder if that's why he was he was kind of over potentially overcompensating in the middle of the race. Like you could tell Vanderpool was in his head. I mean, he was giving it his all with 50k to go to get rid of him, and then he couldn't get rid of him, and he was still just driving so hard to keep that group small. And I'm not sure why. I I don't if you're if you're Van Art there. It's like, well, Vanderpool's the one who's who's on form right now. Let's just get caught and then see what happens. Let's let's make this interesting. Like, if you're the strongest rider in the break, you're trying to keep the variables small. But if you're not, just let the chaos reign. I mean, that's that's how you win. So, yeah, I don't quite understand his logic there, but physically, uh, he seems to be building well. This is this is his first race of the year. Let's keep that in mind. And he looked he looked pretty pretty dang strong. So. Not a ton to panic about there, but I would think there's some urgency uh, from his part wanting to get to these these bigger classics. I don't. I do think Vanderpool is going to be stronger at Milan San He would be my pick for that at this point. So I think Woods going to get beat again, and then the pressure's really going to be on once they get back up to Flanders for uh, those last two two monuments of the spring. Uh, that's the only thing I that really I would worry about is just emotionally, can he keep taking these hits from Vanderpool and then try to rally? So no Tour de France winner has ever ever won this race, which isn't too surprising. It does not really suit, um, you know, the things that make you good at winning the Tour de France, like climbing and time trialing, aren't really of use here. So, or, I mean, long sustained like Alpine climbs, not the short, punchy climbs that are present at a race like Strada. So to see Bernal both Egan Bernal and Tadej Pogacar were in that front group, which was the last two Tour de France winners. So that was super impressive. Uh, Pogacar rode really well, um, not as he, not as good as Bernal, but he got dropped with uh, when Vanderpool attacked with 12k to go. Finished seventh. It's a great result for him. And uh, I think this is like I hope lessons are learned here because with these race cancellations this spring, we've gotten. It's almost like this platonic ideal of, of bike racing where you have it just it's like sounds simple, the best riders at the best races. Uh, right? Should be like that all the time. It's rarely like that. I, I don't even remember the last time I've really seen a race, like a one-day race like this. I mean, maybe I guess Liege after the tour last year, which Liège normally kind of stinks. So to get just like these great, great, you know, because oftentimes you'll wonder, like, well, what would happen if Daddy Pocachar was racing Matthew Vanderpol in a hilly? one day race who would win so it's so cool to get to see that you know we never really you know you'd never get to see like peter sagan and chris froom facing off 5 years ago in a one day race it just didn't happen so it's kind of this deconstructing of bike racing where the specialization's breaking away and we are getting you know just all these great riders are just kind of morphing into like an amorphous blob of just talent and good at everything so that's that's been really fun fun to watch. I mean, it's not inconceivable that Wout Van Aert could be a Tour de France contender. I mean, if you squint hard enough, the guy can TT, can climb. He probably wouldn't win. He'd probably get dropped. You know, like if you think about Col de la Lose, stage 17 last year at the Tour, he probably can't weather that. But who knows? I mean, if there was enough, there was 100k of time trialing, he might be able to win the Tour. So it's like, it's cool to see these riders all kind of morph into kind of just like merge into one instead of Venn diagrams, they're just all a circle. Uh Tom Pickock, super impressive. Twenty-one years old, gets fifth place. Uh he's been hyped a lot, and I didn't quite get it. I mean I guess I don't watch a lot of cross. That's probably why I didn't get it. Um but yeah he, he looks really good. I mean this is this race probably suits him better than like Kern Brussels Kern last and I think he got third at that last Sunday. So the fact that he could mix it up in a sprint at Kern-Brussels-Kern and with how light he is, and then he can kind of turn around and get fifth at a race like this, it's, it's really impressive. Um, just the key there is he has to keep improving. I mean, let's say 10 years ago, and you're 21, and you get a result like this, it'd be like automatic, you're going to be a star. But with these stars getting younger and younger, it's not a given. I mean, think. Tadej Pogacar won the Tour at 21. Tadej Pogacar is only 22 now. So it's like Tom Pickock can be, you know, this, this darling of the cross world. Oh, he's so young. He comes over, but it's like, Hey man, you're only six months younger than the Tour de France champion. You know, it's not, there's definitely more of a pressure on young riders to get results. And like Alaphilippe was like the gray hair in that final group and he's 28 years old. So just with how young these riders are, like these really strong riders are and how Early they get results. Getting that result at 21, it's not to me. It's not a given that he's going to be a star. He has to keep improving. The old guys looked old. I said this last year at Strata, and this year it's the same story. I mean, Greg Greg Van avermatt 35, he made that front group and then just got straight up dropped. I mean, that's there was no bad luck. There was no tactical errors. He just couldn't hang, uh, which kind of makes sense because he's older than. These guys, I, and I mean, this was the first race, uh, last year where I really noticed like, ah, these established stars looked really old, uh, Jakob Fulsang, who, who, I mean, who never looks old, just, just couldn't make that front group. You know, he was there when the split happened and he just physically couldn't get up there. Uh, he's 30, he's 35 as well. Um, so it's just, it almost feels like things are returning. There's some equilibrium. It doesn't really make sense for riders like 35 to 40 years old to be dominating riders in their prime. It doesn't, that doesn't really add up to me. So this is like normal, but it's shocking because these guys have been stars for so long. There's still a lot of like media lag where the media still thinks Greg Van Avermat is one of the best riders in the world when clearly he's just a step behind a lot of these guys. Um, Simon Clark actually was the first, there's only three, three riders over 30 in the top 10 and they were eight, nine, and 10. Um, Simon Clark was the first rider over 30 in eighth place. Um, and it was Jakob Fulsang and then Pelo Bilbao, actually great result from Bilbao. Michael Gogol for Quebec Asos got sixth place. He's actually improved on his uh, ninth place here last year, which was a really, really surprising and good result. He actually went into ha- went on to have a pretty good rest of 2020. So this is just a continuation of that. This is big for the team. I wrote about this a few months ago, how they're incredibly small budget. Um, I'd be surprised if they could get really any results this year. And they already have uh, a win in the bag. I guess not a World Tour win. They have a small race win with uh, Giacomo Nizzolo, and then Gogol's the real deal. So that's huge for them and someone to watch in the future as, as things go forward. Um... The, the only other thing I really want to t- touch on about Strada is it's interesting that Vanderpool's never raced a Grand Tour. He's the only, so there's two riders in the top 10 who never raced a Grand Tour in their lives, Tom Pitcock, Matthew Vanderpool. I do wonder if that helps keep you sharper because the Grand Tours, it's just, it's three weeks of racing, essentially 90 hours. I mean, maybe hundred hours of racing spread over 21 days you never your body's never really the same after that you do lose a top end so in some ways they've almost kind of and he's 20 26 is never and never raced a grand tour that's crazy um he'd probably be if he won he's probably the only monument winner at that age he's maybe the only monument winner ever since the invention of the grand Tours, is never to have raced one before um i think it it probably help. it definitely helps him in these shorter races quote-unquote shorter i mean Strata's four and a half hours. Uh I mean Flanders and Roubaix can be close to seven. They're they're well over six hours. So it I think it it helps him. I think this is an advantage for Vanderpool. It, he can be sharper. We'll see. It will be really interesting to watch at Milano sanremo in two weeks. Uh it's a longer race. It's the long it's three hundred kilometers long. Takes th- the time's not that crazy. I mean, I'd say it's it's about the same time as Flanders. But he kind of struggled in, in that race last year. And if you remember, if you go back to the 2019 World Championships, that's another World Championships are a really long race, and he f- just fell apart. Like he looked like the strongest rider in the race until 20K to go, and he just like, couldn't pedal his bike anymore. So, um, and I, I like say that literally, like he just looked like he stopped being able to possess the physical ability to pedal a bike. I, my crackpot theory is that's because he doesn't have the depth like the physical fitness, the depth of that fitness, uh, from the lack of grand tours, but it makes him sharper in these shorter races. Um, obvious, I'm not saying that he can't deliver in longer races cause he did win two of flanners last year. Worth noting that that was the shortest edition maybe ever in a long time. They had to shorten it for some reason. I forget now there was some issue with the course. So just something to keep your eye on, especially, um, when Sam Ra- Ramo rolls around, if he wins San Ramo, uh, throw that theory out the window. And he's, he's probably good in short races, long races, and he's going to win everything. Um, but it will be really interesting to see how him and Pitcock react, how their bodies react after they race Grand Tours. Um, someone like Julian Alaphilippe, like, he's so explosive. I do feel like he's less explosive than he was at, like if you remember him, um, like at 23, 24. I mean, he was it will almost look like no, no one had ever seen before. And then he has kind of blunted that top end. And that's natural. That's not something, you know, that's not a criticism and it's not something to freak out about. Just something that happens, you know, as, as you race more and more kilometers. Um, Igan Bernal, worth mentioning that stage 11 of the Giro um, goes over these, some of these same roads. So this could be huge for him. I mean, he's looking incredibly fit recovered from the back injury. I we have to I think we have to consider him. I would I would say possibly the favorite for the Giro. I, I didn't preview the Giro brute. They released it. Long story short, lots of climbs in the Dolomites, doesn't go to the south of Italy, kind of the further it goes to like central Italy and then it's really concentrated in the north, which is a lot of mountains, a lot of uh, like steep mountains, uh, irregular mountains. It's just hard racing. It's if the tour is, you know, last year, think it was like a 30 kilometer time trial, 34, 38 kilometer individual time trial, um, one stage, and it was kind of one in that time trial. The Giro the opposite. I mean, it, it actually normally has quite a bit more time trialing than the tour, but is almost always one on the climbs. I mean, Tao Gegenhardt beat Jai Henley. Neither of them are very good time trialists in last year's Giro, despite there being three individual time trials. So it's perfect for Egan Bernal. Kind of makes sense. It is. Ineos' team is sending him there, and he's, he's probably my favorite at the moment. He just looks so good, and he's so talented, and he showed that on Saturday. And if he can replicate this performance at Stage 11 of the Giro, which is similar to the Strada Bianchi race, he could really put a lot of time into his rivals. There are, I believe, two... There might, I think there's two individual time trials, but they only total 38 kilometers, so it, that's really good for him. And these, these Dolomite climbs are going to be great, great, really good for Egon Bernal. I think we've got to start considering him as the favorite for the Giro. Um, kind of odd. It's just strange. I mean, this is just the way life works out, but wins the 2019 Tour de France. You're thinking, oh, this guy's going to dominate the next 10 tours, and like he can't even crack a, a tour lineup for his team it's really crazy it's like he's now it's almost like he's restarted his career at 24 a more you know normal quote-unquote like normal young age but now that actually seems old um, he's like much older than Tade Pogachar and Rimko Evanopol. and he's like, re, like restarting uh, rebuilding his life back up or his career back up and he's just going to the Giro. He'll probably win the Giro, and we'll think, wow, oh, this kid's got a lot of talent. He could probably win the Tour de France someday." And then, in two or three years, he'll he'll finally crack that Tour de France team with his Ineos team. And then, in ten years, he'll win his second he'll win his second Tour de France ten years from his first win. It's it's kind of a strange scenario, but um, just short, focusing in the short term, I think he I we've got to consider him the favorite for. The Giro de Taudia. Um, so I'm just gonna touch on Perry Nice really quick. Um, the first two stages were sprint stages. Actually kind of interesting for sprint stages, like a lot of a lot of uh crosswind like threats of crosswinds. So it's not just breakaways going and sitting out there, they get reeled in with 10k to go and there's a sprint. It's it's real racing and, and nervous. I mean, they're pulling these brakes in early with like fifty K to go. And then it's just this it's you know, you you look at it on TV and it just looks like they're riding in a big bunch, kind of going slow, but there's a lot of nerves. And then every time there's crosswinds, they ramp it up and there's echelons, guys are dropped. They go into a town, they're sheltered by the, by the buildings in the town and the race comes back together. So cool, pretty interesting racing. Sam Bennett won stage one, pretty impressively, pretty definitively. Uh, midway, halfway through the race, Philippe Gilbert went on a breakaway, which should tell us that he, A, wants training, which is pretty impressive to be training at paris because that's seen as one of the hardest races in the first half of the year. Um, but he is really motivated for San Remo. And we're going to get a really interesting showdown between him, like the old, the old guy, versus Vanderpol, the up-and-comer. I mean, you could actually argue Vanderpool is maybe not even an up-and-comer anymore. He's just here. He is the comer. He is the star of the sport, but maybe the media is not caught yet to cut up to that. Either way, that will be a really interesting duel. Um, stage two was a little more, more interesting where uh, Sace Bull won the sprint. I didn't see that coming. But uh, stage three was just this morning. And if you remember, we talked about Stefan Bisinger Bissinger, got second place behind Filippo Ghana at the UAE Tour time trial. He's on EF, ed, EF Education First. I'm proving to be a fantastic pickup for that team. Uh, great Swiss time trials. He wins today. Um, it looked like it's the same time as Remy Cavagna on Ducona Quick Step, which is, I don't know if I've ever seen two riders tied on time in a time trial. I don't even know how they picked the winner there. Um, I'll have to look into that a little bit more. That is bizarre. It must have gone to like the hundredth of the second. Uh, Primus Roglic gets third. Kind of continues this trend where Roglic is a good time trialist, but earlier in his career, he would have won. He definitely would have won that. Um, we're, I mean, we're talking about just a small slip here, but it is worth keeping an eye on. I mean, he, as he's become a better climber, he's lost time trialing ability, which is normal, but it, you, he's not necessarily the ace in the hole in the time trial that he was earlier in his career. I mean, he, uh, Brandon McNulty's three seconds behind him. Soren Crow Anderson, super impressive, uh, four seconds behind, uh, Roglic, 10 seconds behind Bissinger. And then kind of the story of the day is Roman Dennis in six, 13 seconds back. He, in years past would have won this time trial. Easy, easy, like shooting fish in a barrel for him. So it's a little crazy that he's that far back. Uh, not quite sure what's going on there. He's he's been up and down emotionally and mentally in his career, but he's never he's always delivers in time trials. So, um, I, yeah, keep an eye on that, especially as we get closer to the tour. It might not be the ace in the hole that we that we've come to expect. Um, this leaves us kind of an interesting situation on GC where Stefan. Is first, Remy's second, tied with him. Roglic is third. It's kind of just the same results as the time trial, since the first two days were sprints. But this will be super interesting as the week goes on, and we have the two kind of uh, like lower mountain stages. They're not high mountains on Saturday and Sunday, so you can get oh, you get some weird weird stuff going on where like Brandon McNulty could could hang on those climbs or. God, I don't don't know that much about Stefan Bissinger. I assume he can't climb because if he can climb, then we have like a brand new star, 22-year-old star, but he's a big guy, like almost my size. He's like 78 kilograms, so I cannot imagine he's going to be climbing that well. Uh, Yeah, so I think Roglic has this in the bag. I I mean, if we look at the other quote-unquote climbers... We have Juan Izagiri. The Izagiri brothers always, always play in those final two days at Paris-Nice, so keep an eye on him. He's 21 seconds behind Bissinger, like 16 seconds behind Roglic. Steven Kreuzwick. Yeah, Teo Gegenhardt's 44 seconds back, so basically 38 seconds behind Roglic. All those guys are going to have to attack uh, for the rest of the race which is going to make it super interesting. And if we look at the stages, if an uphill finish tomorrow on stage four, uphill finish, I mean, these are like, these are just classically French, like transitional stages. Um, Not mountain stages, but not easy. But hard finishes, like tomorrow's finish is 7K at 6%. So that's not easy. That's for sure. And another sprint, so sprint stage on Thursday, but then Friday is another... I mean, there's a mountain right in the middle of the stage with an uphill finish of 1.9 kilometers at 5%. So it's going to get, it's, I mean, it's going to get uh, spicy, that's for sure. And then Saturday is more of a traditional mountain stage down by Nice. It's a long, long, long finish. Yeah, 16K at 6%. But I, if you're noticing, these are all like uh, stages that are perfect. Perfect for Roglic. Sunday's where it can get, go sideways for a lot of guys because it's that same finish. If you remember stage two of the Tour de France, um, it's that exact same finish where Julien Alaphilippe attacked and then Mark Hershey followed him. Uh, you, can, you, can get, you can get some chaos there, or you can get like a 30 second gap and it, someone can win the, the overall and the descent. It's super exciting. Speaking of that, Mark Hershey, uh, his, after like, being the breakout star of last year, has just like disappeared. His team. His former team, DSN, a.k.a. Sunweb, came out, kind of said he was doping. Um, really a crazy thing for a team to do because it, A, doesn't make them look that good. If They, they said that they like, couldn't trust him. So why were they racing him all year, getting the results, getting a new sponsor, and then telling us later that, like, oh, yeah, this guy's probably dirty? Like, that's not a good look. For, I don't think that's the good look for them that they think it is. Uh, But since that's happened, he's been pulled from the start list of UAE Tour, which you'd imagine is a pretty good race, big race for that team, and they'd want him to feature in it. A small French race is not at Perigny and then is not going to be at Torreno Adriatico, which is kind of the Italian version of Perigny that starts tomorrow. So it's it's just really concerning. I thought it was kind of a crackpot theory when those first two uh, non-race starts happened. I was like, oh, no, that's just crazy. But now this is—it's getting weird. It's officially weird. There's been no nothing from his team, which is odd. Nothing from his personal management, which I believe is Bobby and Cancellara, um, who there's also been quite a few doubts about. Uh, doubts about. Oh, and on Perry Nice, Mads Pedersen has looked really, really good. Uh, I wrote about how he kind of potentially cracked the code on how to beat these big favorites in the classics at Kern. Uh, just kind of sat in the group, and while. Usually Kern if winning Kern means you're not gonna have great success later in the year, he did it without um, using a ton of fitness, and he really appears to be building form at Perry Nice. For example, he got third on stage one, second on stage two, and then even in the time trial, and those were bunch sprints, even in the time trial today, he got fourteenth, just twenty-two seconds back of the winner. So that's that shows that he's his sprint is coming along nice, so he can win Flanders, Roubaix, Milan, San Remo. Those, I mean, we think of those as being like, especially Flanders and Roubaix, won by like the strongest solo riders, but they do, I mean, almost half of the time come down to small bunch sprints. So having packing a sprint is key for winning those. And with the time trial, we see that he's just building some fantastic solo form where if he does have to go on an attack or more likely bridge up to the winning move, he could do it. So those are, I thought. That, that was a really interesting little subplot at Perianese. Uh, Terreno, I, yeah, this race is, it always feels like it gets a lot of publicity. It's, I've never quite gotten it. I mean, we have Matthew Vanderpool here, so we know it's going to be fun, right? Uh, but it's, 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 it's from the Mediterranean to the Adriatico Sea in Italy. You kind of race just right across the thin part of the country over seven days. It's a lot of sprint stages. I mean, stage one, sprint stage. Stage six, sprint stage. Stage seven, sprint stage. So then that leaves us with stage two and three and five are kind of hilly stages, and then one real mountain stage. Yeah, I don't know. It's not really my cup of tea. I, I, we'll keep an, eye, keep an eye on it. I mean, Vanderpool's going to be fun in those flat stages. He, Vanderpool could win. Actually, it'd be interesting to see if his sprint is back or not. But if his sprint is truly back, like he had it in 2019, he could win stage one, two five six seven um and then that would tell us that he's certainly ready to go for san ramo but that's it for this week on the podcast thanks for joining and i'll check in with the uh, we'll talk about how Perinice and Torreno went early next week and do a little bit of milan san preview so thank you for joining